Well, friends, it's my privilege and honor to be back with you this morning. Uh, Margaret and I have once more enjoyed our time here in Kelowna and especially fellowshipping with the saints at Gushigan. Uh, we will be heading off early tomorrow morning to drive to Horseshoe Bay to then head over to the island to visit with my niece and her family for three nights. Then we come back to Vancouver and uh, God willing, we fly out next Friday to Manchester in England. We make a stop over there and we hope to be back in Ballinahinch in Northern Ireland next Sunday. So if you can continue to remember us on our travels, still got a lot of driving to do. And of course you drive on the wrong side of the road. Uh, <laughs> so please do pray that I will be alert and attentive. Uh, as I say, it has been a joy for us to be here. And uh, I want to thank the fellowship for their kindness to us, not just in this visit, but over the past months, as you know, this is my third visit since the beginning of March and Margaret's second visit since the beginning of March. And we have been showered with love and kindness by the folks at Gushikin. So thank you for that. Uh, my sister-in-law has been doing remarkably well in the wake of the death of my brother last month. And we would ask you to please pray on for Linda and the family circle. Supremely, of course, we pray for a breakthrough spiritually, but that is in the Lord's hands. The best we can do is to pray on, and I would encourage you to do that. Now, this morning we're going to look at what I've called some extracts from Ephesians, and in that context, I would like you to turn to the book of Ephesians, and I want to read two portions, uh, one from chapter 1 and the other from chapter 2. So we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read the first 14 verses of it, and then the first 13 verses of chapter 2. So this is God's Word. Paul, an apostle of, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, through which he has made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, in which he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, 
who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Then chapter 2. And you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all had our manner of life in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and has raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were once were afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. We end our reading there and we pray God's precious blessing upon his word. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is the living word of God. It is quick. It is powerful. We thank you that you have preserved it over the centuries. And we pray now that as we come to meditate upon it, that we will just not be hearers of your word, but that we will be doers also. So bless us now as we focus our thoughts on the things eternal and of value. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it would be fair to say that the Apostle Paul was one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament. I think he penned something like 13 of the 27 books that are found in the New Testament. He was a man who discovered that the pen, if you like, was mightier than the sword. Uh, that was not always his approach in life. Uh, we think back to Acts chapter 8. Paul had just witnessed the martyrdom of Stephen. And we read in Acts chapter 8 that Saul was consenting unto his death. He was in full agreement with the death of Stephen. And then we read, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Saul was certainly no friend of the Christians in the early days. And in chapter 9, we read, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, he went on to the high priest. And of course, he wanted letters that he could take with him to Damascus that would authorize his persecution of the Christians there. 
Of course, the Lord had other plans as he traveled along the road to Damascus. <clears throat> so Paul, he was a prolific writer. And many of the New Testament letters that he wrote were written to individual churches to address individual problems in those specific churches. He also wrote letters to individuals personally, like Timothy and Titus, and that was to be helpful, to give advice to them as they began their pastorate. But in relation to the letters to the other churches, if we think of the first letter to the Corinthians, in the first three chapters, Paul addressed divisions. There was uh, factionalism. People were claiming to be disciples of Paul, some of Apollos, and some of Cephas. <clears throat> and then in chapter 5, he had a very awkward issue to address. It was that of family fornication. There was immorality within a family circle. Chapter 11, he had to deal with another issue, and that was disorder and drunkenness as people were coming together to meet for the Lord's Supper. So the first Corinthian letter addressed very specific issues related to the church in Corinth. And his second letter to the church in Corinth was equally addressing a particular issue. I think in chapter 6, he was addressing what I would call ecumenical compromise. <clears throat> in Corinth, there was a, a great temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And a lot of the spirituality in Corinth uh, was related to that. It was really pagan immorality. And of course, a lot of the early believers in Corinth would have come from that background, but it was clear that they weren't putting enough clear blue water between them and their previous immoral spirituality. And so Paul had to speak to them and tell them, you know, you can't keep any sort of fellowship with those that you formerly had contact with. He says uh, in 2 Corinthians and chapter 6, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? So that second letter was very much dealing with this issue of ecumenical compromise. On Wednesday evening, I spoke from Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, we looked at chapter 4 under a series of headings, uh, and one of those headings was... Uh, uh, a difference of opinion. Uh, they were to pursue peace uh, in the church, but there had been a problem had arisen between a couple of folks within the fellowship. So that letter definitely addressed a specific problem found in Philippi. If we go on to Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, we find him there writing his concern about the infiltration of false teaching and teachers. And unfortunately, that was quite prevalent uh, in many of the early New Testament churches, but the Colossian one had a particular problem. And uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of believers there being beguiled with enticing words. And friends, there's no new thing under the sun. We have a lot of false teachers claiming to be Christian in the world that you and I live in, and they can beguile people with enticing words. In other words, their style is tremendous, but the substance is deadly poison, and we need to be on our guard, particularly, I don't know if you watch any of the uh, TV channels where you have people coming on and claiming to be Christian and so on. So as I say, uh, 
the same problem that the Colossians had, we have today. And Paul talks of them being spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit after the decisions of men, after the rudiments of the world. And the result was that they were being drawn away from the simplicity that is to be found in Christ. So that letter addressed a Colossian problem. However, this letter to the Ephesians is rather different. It is more a generic letter than a specific letter. In fact, in many of the early New Testament manuscripts, uh, which are reliable, the words at Ephesus that we read in verse 1 are not actually included. And some commentators believe that this was a letter that was just to be circulated amongst most of the New Testament church, that it wasn't just specifically reserved, if you like, for the Ephesians. And the postman we find in Ephesians 6.21 is a chap called Tychicus. That was his uh, role. He was to circulate this letter amongst the New Testament churches. Uh, in the last decade or so, we've probably all become fairly familiar with the three W's, W-W-W, the World Wide Web. Well, when it comes to the letter to the Ephesians, perhaps the four W's might provide a ready reminder of its themes. So what do I mean by the four W's? Well, in chapter one, we find the will of God. That's the first W. Chapters two and three, we read of the work of God. It's the second W. And then from chapter four through to chapter six, verse nine, we find of the walk for God. And then for the remainder of the letter, we find the warfare for God. So the will of God, the work of God, the walk for God, and the warfare for God. And chapter 4 through to 6, 9, which talks of the walk of God, is particularly challenging. In the first verse, we are told to walk worthy of the vocation to which ye are called. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been called to walk with God. And of course, Amos says, can two walk together except they be agreed? So if we're going to walk in sweet fellowship with God, we must be in full agreement with God and what he believes and what he wants for our lives. So that's the first mention of walk in chapter 4. And then in verse 17, it says, walk not as other Gentiles walk. In other words, when people look at us, we as believers, our walk should be very different from the unbelieving world. Chapter 5, verse 2 says, Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And I think I mentioned it Wednesday that the love of Christ is what they call agape love. It is love that seeks the best for other people. It is not self-centered love. It wants the best for others. And I think it was very touching when David spoke about Mark's uh, conversation with Jay this morning. That was an example of love, Christian love, because Mark wanted the best for that man. And that is how we as individuals and as a corporate body should be walking. In verse 8, it says of chapter 5, walk as children of light. The Bible talks of God is light. And what does it mean when it says God is light? Well, intellectually, he is total truth. Morally, he is perfect purity. And those are the standards that we should be aiming for. <clears throat> when we speak, 
it should be total truth. As we live out our lives, our morality should be perfect purity or as close to it as it can be. Verse 15 of chapter 5 says, walk circumspectly. What does that mean? It means that before you say or do something, try and think of the consequences down the line. In other words, it's very easy to give knee-jerk reactions to what people say or what people do. But we as Christians should walk circumspectly. We should hold back. We should count to 10 or maybe 100 before we respond to something, before we do something. So we are to walk worthy of our calling, and it is a challenge. And as for the fourth W, the warfare for God, well, in chapter 6, verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God. Let's not be under any misapprehensions. The walk as a Christian is a walk in warfare. We are not here to... Uh, as I've said, perhaps here before or in other places, God didn't supply us with a suit of pajamas. We're not here to just, where I'm a Christian now, I can lie down and relax and wait till he takes me to glory. No, he has given us a suit of armor, and that means we are going to be involved in spiritual warfare. So those are the four W's of Ephesians. So what are the extracts that I want to consider here this morning? Well, the first one is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And here we read, And you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, and so it goes on. I would give those verses a heading of our past. Our past. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but uh, back home in the UK, there is a fascination with people's family history, with genealogies, and there are a number of programs which cover those sorts of things. One of them is called, Who Do You Think You Are? (coughs) And what happens in each program is that one individual, usually some well-known celebrity or other, is taken on a journey back into their family history, into their past, to suss out who their forefathers were, their ancient relatives and so on. And some of it is very fascinating. There are some relatives that they probably would have preferred not to have found out about. Uh, And then, of course, there are others which, you know, puff them up. Oh, I'm great that I'm related to so-and-so. But the thing is that each program is separate in its own right. It just deals with one specific individual and who he really is. But then there is another program which is called Find My Past. And what they do in that is they take three people totally unrelated to each other and they take a distant relative of each of those three persons and they trace back and find that those distant relatives actually have something in common. I remember saying one program and it related to three women, and it was dealing with the grandfather of one, the great-uncle of one, and the great-great-uncle of one. So what did these distant relations of these unrelated people have in common? Well, it turned out that they had all been glider pilots or D-Day. These distant relations of these three women had been involved in 
flying gliders behind the German lines when D-Day was happening and landing soldiers and so on. Uh, there was another episode of the program which again traced the uh, history of three unrelated people and it found out that at one stage they had all been on the Dunkirk beaches before they were evacuated back to uh, England. So unlike the individual episodes of Who Do You Think You Are, where there is no real connecting theme, the three life stories in Find My Past all trace their way back to a connecting theme. <clears throat> and you know, Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3 equates to the Find My Past of everyone here in this building, speaker included. And in fact, everyone who has ever been born into the world. You see, our natural spiritual condition can be traced back to a common relative that we all have. And that was the first man ever created, and that was Adam. And Adam, his original sin, it not only brought spiritual death to him, but also to all of his offspring, including you and I. And as David said, the poor homeless man is no different from what you and I were before we were converted to Christ. You and I are all related to Adam, and his sin has affected our lives, not just his. Romans 5.12 says, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. When Adam, the federal head of the human race, sinned, it didn't just affect him and his spiritual relationship with God, it affected the whole of mankind thereafter. And the truth is that ever since Adam, everyone born is physically alive, but spiritually dead. We're born physically alive, but spiritually we are still born. And that truth flies in the face of much that is claimed and believed today. I get a couple of Christian newspapers on a regular basis back home. One of them is called the British Church Newspaper. And towards the end of last year, they had an article called The Great and the Good Promote Spirituality, Not Christianity. And this is what it said. As the practice of biblical Christianity continues to decline in this country, the void is being filled by secular and pseudo-Christian voices claiming to be rediscovering the essential spirituality in people. In his 2002 address, Guy Claxton, in his talk titled Mind Expanding, explained how children needed to develop their innate spirituality. So this man was claiming that everybody had an essential spirituality and innate spirituality. Is that what the Bible teaches? Not when you read Ephesians 2, 1-3. These verses teach that people are not born with an essential and innate spirituality. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. I want to just briefly examine these verses. And the first verse I would title, The Manner of Our Life. Dead in trespasses and sins. And Paul just doesn't 
confirm that in this letter to the Ephesians. Uh, when we go again to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, he writes, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So Paul, in the Ephesian letter and the Colossian letter, confirms that people are naturally dead in trespasses and sins. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. And this is one of the great parting points between evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism does not believe that people are born spiritually dead. Uh, one of the uh, priests back in Ireland who has willingly taken part in the public debates that I have organized in times past is a priest called Patrick McCafferty. And once a month, he writes a column in the main newspaper, which is the Belfast Telegraph. It's called Thought for the Weekend. He's one of a panel of four. And in one of his thoughts for the weekend, he wrote these words, so too the human race wounded and infected by sin. You see, Rome only believes that spiritually we were wounded. But the Lord said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall die. And of course, Adam continued to live physically, but spiritually, he and his offspring died. Rome believes that we're kind of in a spiritual coma that somehow or other we can be awakened from. But that's not the case. We are as dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically. And in fact, you know, uh, Lazarus had been dead for four days and there was a stench coming up. That's why they didn't want the stone rolled away because they knew what was going to come out and greet them. And you know, before we were converted to Christ, spiritually speaking, we were a stench in the nostrils of God. The very interesting little verse back in the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and uh, this is what it says, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary or the perfumer to send forth an evil odor. So does a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. What that verse is teaching is, I don't know what sort of the conditions were like for a, a, a chemist or a, a perfumer in the days of Solomon, but I'm sure there was a lot of hot sun. And as he was mixing together nice things to create a nice scent and a nice odor, if a fly got stuck in what he was making and it died, it ruined the whole thing. And instead of giving off a nice odor, it gave off a stench. And the second part of that verse says that Somebody may have a life that appears to be very wise and very honorable, but if there's a little folly in their life, it rules all of that out, and it means that there's a stench rising spiritually from that person's life. And friends, if we're honest, you and I, before we were converted to Christ, we didn't have a little folly in our life. I know I had a lot of folly in my life, and spiritually there was a stench rising up into the nostrils of God. So, as David said earlier, don't think we're any better than the man who's out there homeless and still unregenerate. We were as much a problem in the sight of God as he would be. 
So dead in trespasses and sins, physically alive, but spiritually dead. We were comfortable in an environment of trespasses and sins. We were constantly overstepping God's boundaries for right behavior. That's what it means to trespass. We were constantly falling short of God's standards for right behavior. That's what it means to sin. We were regularly overriding our God-given conscience. We preferred to pursue our own plans and pleasures. So that was the manner of our life described in verse 1. And then verse 2 of chapter 2 describes the master of our life, the prince of the power of the air. And who is that? That is Satan. We were taken captive by Satan before we were converted to Christ. Whether we recognized it or not, that is the master that we were serving. Uh, no less than four times in the book of John, uh, the Lord refers to this prince of the power of the air. Uh, in John 14, verse 30, he says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of the world cometh and hath nothing in me. Christ knew that Satan was coming to really tempt him to take another path, not to go to the cross. And of course, in John 8, 44, the Lord Jesus Christ described the Pharisees in these terms. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And of course, that sort of language is not politically correct today. Last Sunday, back in Belfast, a pastor in a large church was speaking on the subject of Islam, and he described it as heathen and pagan. The local broadcasting network, the BBC, lit upon him for using such inflammatory language. The police are now investigating a possible hate crime. Well, if the Lord Jesus Christ had been around today and he said to these people, you're of your father, the devil, the police <clears throat> would have come knocking at his door. You're inciting hatred and you are guilty of a hate crime. Friends, we are living in desperately dark dangerous days. But that means we have to be all the more bold for the truth of Christ. As I say, all unsaved, non-Christian people serve Satan to a greater or lesser degree. In 1 John 3 and verse 8, it says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. And in verse 10, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of devil Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Now, don't get me wrong. John's not saying if you commit a sin, you're of the devil. As individuals, sadly, we still sin. But if the pattern of your life is one of continual sin, then there's a big question mark over your claim to be a Christian. But for the unregenerate, the master of the life, and for us before we were converted, the master of our life, was this the devil. Verse 3 then talks about the marks of our life. It talks about how we were happy to operate in the lusts of our flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, we read in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit, we read of the works of the flesh. Now the reality is that probably all of us here didn't tick all of the boxes of the works of the flesh. 
but we certainly ticked some. We may have been guilty of all the works of the flesh, but we were certainly guilty of some because we were fulfilling the desires of our mind. And before coming to Christ, our mind was blinded by the God of this world. We couldn't understand the gospel of Christ. It made no sense to us because Satan had blinded our minds. And even as believers, as I said on Wednesday night, there is still a battle ongoing for our mind. Daily, we're tempted to go into the pleasures of the world, and we must deliberately fight against that. We were children of wrath. That's what verse 3 teaches also. And again, we're living in an age where so many churches don't want you to talk about the wrath of God. God is like a loving grandfather up in the sky who would never say boo to anybody. That is not the God of the Bible. Uh, when I was baptized as a believer in March 1985, uh, before we were baptized, each of us had to share a verse that was of some significance to us. And I shared the verse, John 3 and verse 36, because I was trying to contrast the difference between my life as an unbeliever and my life now as a believer. And it says this in John 3, 36, He that believes on the Son has <clears throat> everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I was so happy as a new convert that the wrath of God no longer rested upon me because the wrath of God for me fell upon Christ on the cross. And that, of course, is at the heart of in Christ alone. For on that day when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. As I've shared in times past, there are some churches in the world, they want to take out those two lines because they don't like people thinking about the wrath of God. But Psalm 58 verse 3 tells us that the wicked are estranged from the womb. That's the condition that we are born into. We're not wounded, as Rome claims. We're spiritually dead. We're dead, we're disobedient, and unless we're converted, we're doomed. That's what it means. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, <clears throat> sums up our past. So what is our next section? Well, verses 4 to 6. This describes what I would call our present. <clears throat> it begins, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. That is our present spiritual condition. In contrast to our past when we were dead, we have now been made alive. Uh, I quoted earlier the British church newspaper where somebody claimed that we all had an essential and innate spirituality within us. Well, it was interesting that in the next issue, there was a letter from a reader, and this is what he said. I was interested in the article about spirituality. To me, spiritual must retain its original New Testament meaning. For instance, if anyone has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of us. 
That's from Romans 8, and that's a very good verse to remember, by the way, if Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at your door and claim to be Christian, because the reality is they're not part of the 144,000. They will be just your average Jehovah's Witness, and they do not claim to be born again. Therefore, they are not indwelt by the Spirit of God, and yet they're claiming to be Christian. But Paul says, if anyone has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. This letter goes on, or nobody can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. And not forgetting our Lord's own words, except one is born of the Spirit or from above, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you're a Christian, that has been your experience. And Paul draws attention in these verses to the great and gracious work. <clears throat> right at the outset, the one responsible for the change between your past and your present is identified, but God. He is the one who has changed all spiritually dead people because, you see, dead people can't change anything. You know, I'm sure we've all been to funerals. We've maybe been in a house where there's maybe still an open coffin. And a relative is standing beside their deceased loved one, and they're maybe speaking to that person. And perhaps they even put a little kiss on the forehead before the coffin is closed. Now, it's perfectly understandable why people do that. But we have to recognize that the person who has died cannot hear what is being said and cannot feel the touch of those lips on the forehead. God, he made the difference. Was he obliged to? Absolutely not. Then why did he do it? Verse 4 says that he was rich in mercy. The mercy of God withholds from us what we truly deserve. And what we truly deserved as unregenerate sinners was the wrath of God. But in mercy, God has loved us. He has been merciful. He has loved us, and it's an eternal love. We go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 4. It says, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The love of God that you and I have experienced as Christians is an eternal love. It was set upon us even before time began. So why did God quicken us and make us alive? Because he's rich in mercy, because he loved us. In verse 5, it's because he's gracious. And grace is kind of the opposite of mercy. And mercy, he withholds from us what we deserve. But gracious means that he gives us what we don't deserve. And what he has given us in Christ is a full, permanent pardon. And he has given us acceptance in Christ. He gave us spiritual life. And in verse 6, we read that he has raised us up. What does that mean? Well, we were spiritually dead. And now we have been spiritually resurrected. Just as Christ was physically resurrected, so we have been spiritually resurrected. 
These are the powerful and magnificent works of God. Merciful, loving, gracious. As Christians, we are no longer slaves to Satan and to sin. As Christians, we are no longer comfortable in ungodly situations and surroundings. As Christians, we are no longer subject to God's wrath. That is our present condition. Our next extract from Ephesians looks at our prospect. We've looked at the past when we were dead spiritually. We've looked at the present when we've been spiritually resurrected. And now we're going to look at the prospect. And where do we find that? We find it in verse 7. That in the ages to come, we might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. The ages to come. The Bible is very clear. Time as we know it will end. There's no doubt about that. And eternity will be the final age. If that's not actually a contradiction in terms. But it will be. It's going to be the final age if I could put it that way. Now the reality is, will everyone enjoy eternity? Is it going to be a blessed time for everybody? Well, not really. If we <clears throat> go back to Matthew's gospel, and if I can find my, my bookmark, which has slipped down here, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to read from verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, this is not politically correct, but it is the word of God. Not everyone is going to enjoy eternity. Now, our prospect as Christians it is not determined by God's just and righteous punishment of unrepentant sinners, but it is determined, as the verse says, by his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. The word kindness means goodness of heart. You've probably heard the expression, oh, so-and-so did that out of the goodness of their heart. In other words, they weren't obligated to do what they did. They simply did it out of an act of love and kindness, out of the kindness of their heart. And that's exactly what God has done for you and me. And it is through Christ Jesus that he demonstrates the goodness of his heart. Did he bypass or set aside or ignore his own just and righteous standards when he saved us? Absolutely not. Because his kindness toward us was through Christ Jesus. The demands of God's justice, 
his punishment of sin had to be fully met. And for his chosen people, those demands were fully met on the cross of Calvary. He did not bypass justice. Bill Clinton, a few days before he left office as President of the United States, issued an order releasing from prison a whole raft of prisoners who did not serve the prescribed time of punishment for their crimes. He bypassed justice. Justice was not served. But that does not happen when it comes to the pardoning of sinners like you and me. It is through Christ Jesus. Our prospect is glorious because of Jesus Christ. He was the perfect substitute for sinners. His perfect substitutionary sinless life is now our righteousness. It's credited to us when we believed. And his perfect substitutionary sacrificial death is our redemption. It met the demands of God's law. As Christians, Christ has lived and died for us. He has met all the demands of God's justice. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Paul once wrote in Romans 7, 24, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And he answered in Galatians 3, 20, The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The writer of the Hebrews encourages us in Hebrews 12 too, to be looking on to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Christ lived righteously for me. Christ died redeemingly for me. Christ rose triumphantly for me. Christ intercedes lovingly for me. And Christ will return gloriously for me. And so in pardoning us and gifting us with our salvation and with a glorious prospect, God is able to be, as Paul wrote in Romans 3, 26, just and the justifier, that is the partner of him who believes in Jesus. What a prospect is ours. For our final extract from Ephesians, I want to go back to chapter 1, and I want to consider our possession. Uh, let's read verses 3 to 5 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. I wonder if I was to ask everybody here, when you go home today, make out an inventory of all the material blessings that have been yours or that are yours. And then could I ask you to select one of those as being your most prized possession? I wonder what you would settle for. Maybe for the ladies, it might be, if you're married, it might be your engagement ring, or perhaps it might be a legacy from your mother if she has died. Maybe it's her wedding ring, something 
Some item of jewelry might be your most prized possession. Maybe the gentlemen aren't just so sentimental. and Maybe they might be more into the digital age and maybe their most prized possession might be their latest smartphone or their iPad or whatever it happens to be. The first chapter of Ephesians lists many spiritual blessings that we as Christians possess. Some of them were mentioned earlier by David. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are accepted. But in closing, I want to highlight one particular spiritual blessing that we possess, and it's this. We have been adopted by God. Our past taught us that we were spiritually sons of Satan. But our present and our prospect tells us that we are now spiritually sons of God. Behold, now we are the children of God. But of course, we are only that because God has graciously adopted us. Paul likens our renewed relationship with God to that of adoption. There's another television program back home that I like. And by the way, I don't spend all of my time watching television. But there is a program that I like, and it is called Air Hunters. And what happens is that every Thursday morning, the British government publish a list of people who have died in recent years without leaving a will. And so nobody knows who is legally entitled to their estate. And the result is that if nobody comes forward to claim it, then after a number of years, the money goes to the government. Well, there are a series uh, or a number of probate firms in England who specialize in looking at these lists and then setting about trying to track down the people, the descendants, the relatives of the one who has died, and they hope to be able to prove to the government that these people are entitled to the person's estate. And of course, when they track the beneficiaries down, they try to sign them up so that they can act on behalf of that beneficiary. And of course, when the beneficiary gets the money that's due to them, then the probate firm, they get a commission of based upon how much the legacy is. So it's a very fascinating program, and uh, there are many unexpected twists and turns, and uh, people have relatives that were all around the world, you know, people serving in India or people who emigrated, whatever it happens to be. But sometimes the probate firms, they they come across a problem. In their uh, research, they suddenly discover that somebody has appeared in the family tree who they think, where did that person come from? Or alternatively, somebody that they thought should be in the family tree has suddenly disappeared off the radar. Very often what has happened is there is a matter of adoption that has happened. In some cases, somebody has been adopted into the family of the person who has died, and so they're going to get some money. Or alternatively, someone may have been adopted out of the family of the one who has died. And so the result is they're not going to get any money. Because that is exactly what happens. If you're adopted into the family of the one who has died, then you become an heir of that person and you're entitled to something. But if you've been adopted out of a person's family who has died, 
That means that whatever the legacy is, you're not going to get any part of it. Being in Christ, we are now adopted into the family of God. In Romans 8, 14, Paul writes, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. And Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Through being in Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God, and we will share in the legacy of the blessed coming kingdom that Christ secured for himself through his work on the cross. But being adopted into the family of God means that we have been adopted out of the family of Adam. We are no longer lost and unregenerate. The Bible describes the world of people as being either in Christ or in Adam. And if those who are still unregenerate, it means that they are still in the family of Adam. That means that they're still going to inherit the legacy of what happened when Adam sinned. And that will be an eternity subject to and under the wrath of God. John the Baptist warned the Pharisees to flee from the wrath to come. But Paul reassured the believers in Thessalonica about the coming day of the Lord when Christ returns. And he said this, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Adoption into the family of God. For me, personally, I think that's one of the most spiritually blessed possessions that I have, along with being forgiven, along with being redeemed, but to actually be able to say I am a child of the living God. We've looked at our past, our present, our prospect, and our possession. So in closing, could I maybe personalize those and say, what about your past, your present, your prospect, your possession? If there was a tick box beside each of those four things, your past, well, we can all tick it, saved or unsaved. Our past was we were dead in trespasses and sins. But what about your present? Can you tick that you are spiritually alive in Christ, that you have known the wonder of the new birth? Well, only you can answer that. What about your prospect? Do you look forward to the glory that is to come? Has death lost its fear for you because you know that you will be absent from the body and present with Christ? What about your possession? Can you say, I am a child of the living God because God has graciously adopted me into his family? Or are you still viewed, as the Bible describes it, as being in Adam, subject to the wrath of God? Paul, in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, he talks about those who are not Christians, and he says they're without Christ. They're without hope. 
They're without God. Whereas those who have been saved in Christ, they have been brought near by the blood of his cross. These extracts from Ephesians, they bring both comfort and challenge. So I leave it with you. Where do you stand this morning as we leave this building in a short time? May God bless his word to our hearts.